0: If you uh, take your Bibles and turn to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter one. And we'll start reading just at the beginning. This is the living and abiding word of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, But also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Certainly the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And Father, tonight as we turn our attention to uh, to what revival is and what it looks like, we pray that, that you would help us to long and to thirst, to see your hand move in our lives, in our churches, Lord, and in our nation. And so we pray for your help tonight. And Father, we don't, we don't simply want to talk about these things. We, we want to see these things. We want to know these things. We want to experience these things. And so we pray, even tonight, that you would help us. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Thomas Charles ministered in Wales. And in 1791, he wrote this, The coming of the Lord amongst us has been with such majesty, glory, and irresistible power that even his avowed enemies would be glad to hide themselves somewhere. It is an easy and delightful thing to preach the glorious gospel here in these days. Divine truths have their own infinite weight and importance in the minds of the people. Beams of divine light together with irresistible energy accompany every truth delivered. It is delightful indeed to see how the stoutest heart bended and the hardest melted down with fire from God's altar. For the word comes in power and in the Holy Ghost. And is made mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. In 1859 to 60, there was a revival in Scotland and especially in the town of Dundee. Which is famous because that was where Robert Murray McShane had ministered just a couple of decades before. And the report of that revival goes like this. Just as the sun was beginning to shine out again and the rain was ceasing, an extraordinary sense of the divine presence fell upon the whole assembly. Suddenly, the Christians were filled with great joy. Simultaneously, many of the anxious found the Lord and began to break forth in songs of praise. The cloud of glory rested there for a season and no visible signs or miraculous gifts could have added to the blessed consciousness and veritable certainty of the immediate presence and gracious working of God. Till memory fails or the more excellent glory of the unveiled face of Emmanuel obliterates the remembrance of faith's brightest visions on earth, it is impossible for us to forget the awful nearness of God, the awesome nearness of God at that time, the overpowering sense of blended majesty, love, and holiness, the solemn gladness and the soft pure radiance of redeemer's face that chase the doubt and sin away from many a soul. Well you could read accounts like that over and over and over again and in fact I would I would encourage you to read accounts like that there are so many good books that are in print that recount revival and awakening in past times but as we come to this subject tonight by the way this is one of my favorite books on revival Brian Edwards revival of people saturated with God Um, Edwards makes this this observation that I think is totally worth us taking a look at he says perhaps the greatest problem with this subject of revival today is that few Christians have ever read anything about revival He says, to encourage Christians to pray for revival when they don't know what it is would be like inviting me to take a holiday on Mars. And so I think that what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about what revival is and what it looks like so that we know really what we long for, what we desire. And so I'm going to give you a number of, uh, of definitions here. And these are all from different sources. But I think all are good. Um, Ray Ortland Jr., when God comes to church, he says, Revival is a season. By the way, that's important to remember. It is a season where God sovereignly causes the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit to surge forward in extraordinary measure and power. The old Scottish theologian James Buchanan, revival properly consists in two things a general impartation of new life, vigor, and power to those who are already of the number of God's people, and a remarkable awakening and conversion of souls who have hitherto been careless and unbelieving. In other words, it consists in new spiritual life imparted to the dead and new spiritual life imparted to the living. Brian Edwards in the book that I just referred to, he says a true Holy Spirit revival is a remarkable increase in the spiritual life of a large number of God's people accompanied by an awesome awareness of the presence of God, intensity of prayer and praise, a deep conviction of sin with a passionate longing for holiness and unusual effectiveness in evangelism leading to the salvation of many unbelievers Believers. Revival is remarkable, large, effective, and above all, it is something that God himself brings about. And so as we think about uh, our subject tonight on, on the nature of, of revival, I want to just reiterate something that we said this morning, and that is that revival is always a sovereign work of God. You 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 actually cannot manufacture it. Um, there are a lot of things that we can do in the flesh that people call revival. Okay. Um, when I was uh, when I was a teenager, I went to um, I was invited. So I had an interesting uh, uh, teenage career. I preached my first sermon at age fifteen. Now, if a 15-year-old came to me in our church and said, I want to preach, I'd say, that's nice, okay? But I started preaching at 15. When I was 17, there was a guy that came to our church, and he happened to hear me preach on a Sunday night. And what did he do? He invited me to come and to preach at a full gospel camp meeting in Calaveras County now if you know anything about California Calaveras County it's famous for the annual frog jumping contest alright well I want to say that, that, that this full gospel camp meeting rivaled the frog jumping contest and so um, four or five hundred people in this uh, in this uh, these fairgrounds and we would sing and sing and sing And sing and sing. And we typically just sang short songs over and over and over and over. And what would happen is, is that people would get more and more and more worked up and more and more and more worked up. And then they would give the invitation and lay hands on people and they'd fall over left and right. Now, let me, let me qualify and say that our emotions should be engaged as we worship God. Heartless, affectionless worship is not worship. But there is a difference between having your affections engaged as you worship and the manipulation of the emotions. There's a big difference. And so you can do all kinds of things. You can, you can tell stories. You can tell, um, you can tell moving stories. Um, and, and this was before I had any discernment, obviously. Um, the pastor's sister got up and she preached. And she preached how she got in a car wreck, fell off a of Highway 50 down into the American River. She died and her sweet mama prayed her back to, to life through prevailing prayer. And you have to say it like that, by the way, in order to get the full meaning. Prevailing prayer. And so then of course what happened is she went to hell and all of this. And I was sitting there just uh, you know. And you're gripped right. So is is it easy to, to manipulate people's emotions through moving stories. Moving music. And the answer is yes. And so we have to understand that genuine revival is not something that we work up. It's not something that we plan Charles Finney, who actually probably has done more damage than, than anybody in the last 175 years in church history actually taught that that revival is simply the right use of the right means to produce the right outcome that you want and by the way he thought you could convert yourself as well all right so when we say when we start talking about revival what we're talking about first and foremost is a sovereign move of god's spirit when he wants where he wants and how he wants all right now the other part that we need to to consider carefully is when god moves when the spirit of God is is present among a people, among a congregation or a region, what does it look like? What are the what are the necessary and unmistakable elements of genuine revival? We, we would call these the, um, the, the, the sine qua non. That is the without which nothing. If you don't have these, you don't have genuine revival. And this is going to be simple for some of you that are that are really familiar with these things. It'll just be review. But I would say, number one, the first thing that is the necessary and unmistakable element of genuine revival is that when the Holy Spirit is at work... The Holy Spirit is exalting Jesus Christ and the truths of the gospel. Okay? So Jesus talks about when the Spirit comes, John 16, 13 to 15, when the Spirit comes, what is he going to do? He will glorify me. So the the... the The role of the Holy Spirit, or you could even put it like this, the delight of the Holy Spirit is to shine the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have a movement, and I don't care what the manifestations are, if it's not focused on Christ and the glorious truths of the gospel, then it's not a genuine revival. In other words... Genuine revival is not about gold dust coming down on the congregation. Where we live, we live about four hours from Redding, California. And you know what's in Redding, California? Bethel Church and Bethel School of Theology and Ministry. Do you know that in, in Shasta County, where Redding is, Bethel Church and School employ more people than the county itself. Okay, it's massive. But you know what happens when we just we just put it like this: when when you use a gimmick to bring about bring about revival, what has to happen is. The gimmicks have to get better. In other words, um, gold dust is great for a while. By the way, I have no idea why nobody thought maybe they just put glitter in the air ducts, but oh well. Um, Falling down and laughing hysterically is not revival, okay? Um, Having a guy that can lengthen legs by messing with your shoe is not a revival, now, in genuine revival, there may be physical manifestations or phenomenon that are, uh, that are unusual. So, for instance, Jonathan Edwards is preaching in Enfield, Connecticut. By the way, he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God in his own congregation in Northampton to no effect He preaches that sermon which is one of the most famous sermons preached on American soil. No effect in his own congregation. He goes to a different congregation a number of miles away as a visiting preacher preaches the same sermon there and it is in that context in that church while he's preaching he actually has to stop preaching because he's he's talking about the impending judgment of God and using incredibly vivid language what ends up happening is people begin to cry out people begin to actually hold to the pillars in the church people begin to actually cry out I'm sinking into hell I'm sinking into hell so do not dismiss a work of the spirit of God because there are unusual things that may happen but just as sure as unusual things may happen, the fact is, is that oftentimes in revival there is a stillness, there is a weightiness, there is a gravity, and at times even a silence. And so the, the, the physical phenomenon or lack thereof is not what is central in true revival. What is central in true revival is the Spirit of God shining the spotlight not on Himself. The Holy Spirit, as as has often been said since the, the time of John Calvin, is the shy member of the Trinity. The Spirit of God does not want to bring attention to himself. He's bringing attention to Jesus Christ. And so, if you have a movement that's about nothing other than the Holy Spirit, His gifts, His presence, His manifestations, His this, His that, and Jesus Christ is marginalized, it's not a genuine revival. And so, the the Spirit of God delights to shine that spotlight on the Lord Jesus A second necessary and unmistakable element is that the Spirit of God actually brings a sense of God's presence and nearness especially being aware of His holiness. And so we see for instance in the book of Acts chapter 2 interesting. A lot of times uh, people will go to the book of Acts and look at it as if it is prescribing for us what we ought to do. And and yet very rarely do we actually experience the things that are described. But in Acts 2.43, it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And so the, the the church is experiencing, in a sense, the dawning of the age of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is present. The, the, there's preaching. There's, there's uh, the breaking of bread. There's prayer. There's fellowship. And they had a sense of Awe. And so what often happens in genuine revival is that the Spirit of God mediates the presence of God in an unusual way. So let me ask you a question. So is God present right here tonight? Absolutely. And you know, what we call that, we call that omnipresent. Right? It's one of God's attributes. He's omnipresent. He's actually everywhere right so there's there's that sense in which god is here uh, i don't know if you guys have any like bars in jerome do you have bars in jerome okay so so in 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 this in the sense of of omnipresence god is actually present in those bars as well right okay it, there's no place god is not but is god here among his people in a way that he's not at Kelly's Bar and Grill. Sorry. (laughs) I'm glad my wife's not here. I, I would know I was in trouble because I'd look down and she would be like this. That's the price of extemporaneous preaching, isn't it? So, is God here in a way that he's not in, let's say, Walmart or a bar? Yes, he is, right? He's here in a way, right? He's, he's everywhere present, but he's here in a way that is, that is peculiar to being present with his people by his spirit. You second person plural, are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you, second person plural, and so there is a sense in which God is present with his people. But I want to say that during times of revival, that sense of God's special presence with his people is mediated by the Spirit in a way that there is a sense of awe God is among us. And, and there's, this, uh, there's this great passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul, he's talking about tongues and prophecy. But here's, here's the, the part that is relevant. And will not the unbeliever say, certainly God is among you? In other words there is a manifest presence when God is with his people and there is revival and so the holy spirit indwells the congregation but there is a a height we'll put it this way there's a heightened sense of awe there is a heightened sense of the nearness of god there is a heightened sense of divine holiness and so what happens is that everything that 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 occurs in the course of worship is marked by that heightened sense of divine presence so that prayer is now is now elevated to a degree where there is there is a power in the communion in corporate prayer there is power in preaching which we 'll talk about in a second um, what about singing singing god 's praise and so if you by the way you cannot um, be in God's presence, and be aware of God's presence and and not worship okay. I have a pet peeve. Can I talk about it? Uh, he said, I could I have a bar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask somebody to edit that part out. But um, when you look at Revelation 4 and 5 and you see the, the throne room scene of Revelation 4 and 5, you have the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the myriad of angels, and the whole company of the glorified, redeemed. And what are they doing? They are worshiping and praising God. And it's loud. And it's loud. You, you cannot find a quiet worship service in the book of Revelation. It's loud. When God saved us, as the passage in First Thessalonians tells us, we, we turned from idols to, to, uh, to serve the living and true God. And so when God changes us, brings us from death to life, from darkness to light, he turns us into worshipers. There is a sense in which the transformation of a new heart puts a new song in our heart. And so, quite honestly, for the life of me, I don't understand a Christian that won't sing during worship service. And believe me, and it's not not just men, okay, but it's mostly men. But you see guys, and they're standing there, and I don't know what it is. Maybe they think that, you know, maybe... People think I'm too girly if I'm singing. But here, here, here's the reality. The Spirit of God, if He's present in your heart, that will come out in praise. Okay? okay. We, have, we have ruined our singing in worship over the last 50 years. We've ruined it. And we've relegated it to entertainment To people that are the talented ones. And the reality is. Is that the entire congregation. Is the choir. And so when God is moving. And God draws near. And the spirit of God is mediating. The presence of God. There is. There is a reverence. There is an awe. But there is a gravity. And a gladness. That is is vibrant. Among God's people. And so the Spirit of God does that in our midst. Number three. The Spirit of God empowers the preaching of the Word with a special unction. Okay? Now, the word unction or, or anointing, don't think about unction or anointing uh, in, in terms of what you might hear from television preachers. Um, think of it this way. The Apostle... The apostles are gathered in, uh, in Acts chapter 4. Um, Peter, James, and John had just uh, been arrested and beaten. They got released. They went back rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. And they go back and they have a prayer meeting. And as they have a prayer meeting, which we'll talk about Tuesday, uh, tomorrow night, as they have a prayer meeting, God's presence comes in such a way that the building shakes. And then the text tells us and they went out and preached the word with boldness. And so there was a sense in which in which the Spirit's presence and power among the people actually then manifested itself in powerful preaching. The apostle could say to the Corinthians that when I came among you, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God, right? And so Paul, Paul actually understood this. um, You know, we are subject to so much um, nonsense, in terms of what makes for effective preaching, and 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 what we do is we take the the world's communication theories and we try to baptize them in in Christianese, and then we think of that that an effective communicator is actually a good preacher. And what I want to say is that preaching is an altogether different animal than merely communicating. The reason is, is that mere communication cannot factor in the Holy Spirit. Preaching factors in the Holy Spirit, and it must factor in the Holy Spirit. And so, Paul had absolute confidence that his words were not words of wisdom, that is sophistry, but they were words of demonstration of the Spirit and Power. And notice in the text that we read in 1 Thessalonians, that is exactly how Paul addresses the Thessalonians. And this is how they know that they've been chosen of God. It really is a remarkable text. Verse 4, knowing brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. And well, how do you know that, Paul. Answer, verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now, does the gospel need to come in word? Yes. I I hear that every once in a while that somebody says that St. Francis of Assisi says, uh, preach the gospel wherever you go and when necessary use words. And I really hope that he didn't really say that because that's like one of the dumbest things ever. Okay? You have to use words to explain the gospel. If you just go and just do something nice to somebody. If you just take them, you know, Amish friendship bread and say, here you go. And you do like really nice stuff. That's not the gospel. It might be a very good, nice Christian act of love or kindness. But the gospel requires words. But when the gospel comes It comes not in word only. And that's exactly what Paul says. It did not come to you in word only. But also. So words. But also. In power. And in the Holy Spirit. And full conviction. And so this is a picture of of what happens in a sense in revival so there's there's a mediated sense of god's presence but there's also a sense in which the word the preaching of the word is empowered in an unusual way and so one one of the things that i that i love in reading about revivals is what happened during preaching? It's absolutely remarkable. One of my favorite, one of my favorite stories is, um, so in the Scottish Highlands, they would have, this goes back to the covenanting times of the 16, middle 1600s, and they would have communion seasons so they would have churches that would gather together usually for about three or four days and they would hear preaching every day and then it would lead up to actually the observance of the Lord's Supper. And so they'd have these communion seasons. One of the most famous preachers in Scotland at that time was a man named Robert Bruce. And Robert Bruce was, was a powerful preacher. And so that particular communion season they gather at the Kirk of Shots. Kirk just being the Scottish word for church. And the Spirit of God was moving. And one night after the services and after the communion, a number of them were praying and, and conferencing with each other. That is, they were talking to each other. And they decided that they should extend the communion season for for another day and they ask a young man by the name of John Livingstone to bring the sermon he was a young man, and at first he said yes, but then the next day as he's thinking about the sermon, he begins feeling incredible reluctance. You know why? Because he starts thinking, I'm a young man. There are, there are venerable old men here that have been preaching the word and suffering for the gospel. I shouldn't be the one to preach. Somebody else should preach. But he couldn't get off the hook. And so he goes for a walk and he believed that God put on his heart to preach Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, the new covenant passage about the spirit of God coming and taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh and putting in, uh, renewing a new spirit in us and the spirit dwelling in us and making us Walk in God's ways, sprinkling clean water on us, and we'll be clean. That was his text. And so he starts preaching, and the the crowds were huge. Typically, you couldn't get all the people in a church, so they met outside. And so here they are, and this young man is preaching, and he's doing his best, and it starts to rain. Can you imagine? It starts to rain in the Scottish Highlands. Who would have thought? And this is, this is the report of, of that day. As he was about to close the discourse, a heavy shower came suddenly on which made the people hastily take their cloaks and mantles. Now this is how you can tell their sturdy Scottish stock, right? Americans would have like ran inside or jumped in their cars. The Scots, what do they do? They just pull their cloaks up over their head and they keep listening. He proceeded to speak. The following. So he'd been preaching for about an hour. It Starts to rain. There was a sense that God was moving among the people. And then, then John Livingston said this. He said, if a few drops of rain so discompose you, how discomposed would you be? How full of horror and despair if God should deal with you as you deserve. And thus he will deal with all the finally impenitent. God might justly rain fire and brimstone upon you, just as he did Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. But forever blessed be his name, the door of mercy still stands open for such as you are. The Lord Jesus Christ by tabernacling in our nature and obeying the law which we have wickedly and willfully broke and suffering the punishment that we have so richly deserved has now become a refuge from the storm and a covert from the the tempest of divine wrath due for our sin. I don't know how to make this go up, JT. Oh, there we go. Just... Me and technology, I know who invented the internet and I know who invented computers and neither one was Al Gore or Bill Gates, was the devil. Oh, okay, I know what I'll do. Okay, so he goes on and he says... So you gotta re- it's raining. And he's talking about God now showering wrath on you. And now you have to realize that the only refuge is in Jesus Christ. And he's a covert from the tempest of divine wrath due to us for our sin. His merits and mediation are the lone defense from that storm. And none but those who come to Christ just as they are. Empty of everything. And take the offered mercy at his hand will benefit from that shelter. And he goes on like that for another hour in the rain the spirit of god was so powerfully at work Re- remember there were no counting noses because of some invitation system the seasoned ministers at the shots communion season estimate that at that sermon, 500 souls were converted. And so the Spirit of God will take the Word of God with extraordinary power. Now, you know what's interesting? John Livingston went on to minister for for a, 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 a decade or two more and never actually sensed the same, same uh, presence and power of God in his preaching. Ever, ever again, it was, just, it was that time. But when the Spirit of God comes and brings genuine revival, there is an extraordinary power in the preaching of the Word. And on top of that, there's great joy and eagerness in hearing the Word. The truths that are commonly used during times of of revival, the, the, the truths that are preached, oftentimes revolve around the character of God. His holiness, His sovereignty, His faithfulness, His love... Oftentimes, the, uh, the preaching of, of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, free from our own human efforts, are used by God in the Connecticut River Valley revival of 1734 and 35. Starts by Jonathan Edwards doing what? Preaching a series on justification by faith alone. And then, of course, repentance. Both for believers and unbelievers. In other words, one of the marks of true revival is not just simply powerful preaching, but it's often powerful preaching about sin that brings about true repentance. And it's the Spirit of God that does what? That brings conviction, that brings a sense of brokenness for our sin and repentance on both the converted and the unconverted alike. Number four... The Holy Spirit produces his fruit in the lives of those who are awakened and revived, especially love from God, for God, and for others. Now, we'll talk more about this on Tuesday when we talk about Jonathan Edwards and the religious affections. Uh, Edwards is going to argue in there that it's not physical manifestation that's a mark of God's presence and work among you, but it's actually a change of heart. It's a change of life. Right, and, and of course that should go a long way for us today when, when we have so many marks of revival that are just simply the efforts of the flesh or the creativity of fallen man's imagination. Right, one of the one of the one of the manifestations that the Spirit of God is at work, reviving the people of God, is that their hearts begin to change with love to God and love to each other. The Spirit of God is, is Romans five five. It's poured out into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit, the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. One of the things that, that, that accompanies um, a genuine work of God among the people of God is that old rifts are healed. Grievances are actually dealt with. Reconciliation takes place. There is a sense in which there is a, a renewed love to brother and sister in Christ as well as neighbor. In other words, the deeds of the flesh don't prevail in times of revival among God's people. The fruit of the Spirit does last genuine revival transforms society and culture now i have a i have a view of revival that says that when revival happens in the church awakening takes place in society. In other words, a revived church does not leave the community untouched. A biblical example of this would be when Paul goes to Ephesus. And so, Ephesus of course is famous for what? Well, for Artemis worship or Diana worship. And in fact, they have uh, the silversmith Trade union, in a sense, and these guys make a ton of money because they sell their Diana or Artemis trinkets, right? And so um it is it, in fact Ephesus is the center in Asia Minor of Diana worship. And Paul's preaching the gospel, and he actually sets up shop in the school of Tyrannus, and people are coming and going, and what's happening? They're hearing the gospel, and as they hear the gospel, they're getting saved. And as they get saved, guess what they're doing? They're giving up Diana worship. Go figure. Well, then what happens is that the, uh, the silversmiths begin to notice, you know what? We're seeing a, a massive drop in our profits. Oh, and by the way, Diana's being dishonored. Now, of course, you realize that it was, the, it was the money, not Diana's reputation, that was the main driving force. So what ends up happening is you end up having a riot Okay? But here, here's the amazing thing. The people that were being converted were bringing their, their magic books, their occult books. Um, basically, they were bringing their Shirley MacLaine books, uh, you know, all of the stuff that was all the amulets, and, and you could go into all of the power magic stuff in the background to Ephesus and Colossae. And what they're doing is they're bringing it out and they're burning it. The amount of money that Luke actually records in in the uh, occultic materials would run uh, in terms of modern day equivalent into the millions of dollars. What was happening? The world was being turned upside down. But it wasn't being turned upside down because a bunch of conservative Christians got together and said, you know what? We need to do something about this Diana worship. So maybe what we should do is we should maybe set up some protests outside of the, of the prominent silversmith shops. Down with Diana, up with Christ. Christ. Maybe what we should do is we should write our our congressmen and actually tell them how bad this is for our culture and for our society. I mean, have you seen the statue of Diana? Absolutely perverse, grotesque. We shouldn't have to actually live with that kind of exposure to to this grotesque goddess. They didn't do any of that. They didn't sit there and try to strategize on how to overthrow. What they did is Paul preached the gospel. People were saved. Society was transformed. Can you imagine what would happen if we were to experience a widespread awakening today? There was a reason why the old timers spent so much time praying for revival. It's because they saw revival as the means through which the kingdom of Christ spread and conquered throughout the world. Now, when you read about revivals, you read all kinds of amazing things. So, Ian Murray in his book Pentecost Today says, he's talking about one of the marks of revival, which of course ends up being, I'll give you his his exact words, revival always has a moral impact upon communities. He says, The moral change in Boston in the 1740s was characteristic of what happened in many other parts of North America. So he's talking about the Great Awakening. He says, um, quoting from Trumbull, he says, there was in the minds of people a general fear of sin. Could you imagine what our... Could you imagine what Jerome, Idaho would look like? Could you imagine what, what, what Minden, Nevada would look like? Even if, even if just 10% of the people started to have a fear of sin. It would transform. He says, It was the opinion of men of discernment and sound judgment who had the best opportunities of knowing the feelings and general state of the people at that period that bags of gold and silver and other precious things with safety might have been laid down in the streets and nobody would have converted or coveted them to their own use. Theft, wantonness, impertinence, Uh, intemperance, sorry, profaneness, Sabbath breaking and other gross sins appeared to be put away. You can read about the Welsh Revival for instance where there there were pubs everywhere. More pubs than churches. Welsh Revival comes and something like four out of ten pubs shut down because of lack of patronage. The revival of 1859 in Northern Ireland likewise brought an immense change for many in the population. The drunkenness endemic in some ways, in some sections of society was reversed as the drink trade went into sudden decline. In one district which possessed nine public houses, that is pubs, ale houses two were closed by the conversion of the owners a third for lack of trade and the quantity of alcohol sold in the six uh, in the other six which remained open was was far less than had been formerly sold and so Ian Murray goes on, he says volumes could be filled with the same point drawn from mission fields of the world where the same kind of transformation occurred, though not always just through revival. For instance, John Payton, a pioneer missionary to the New Hebrides, but you could take John Payton, you could take William Carey, some of the grossest form of practices, burning widows, for instance, in India. What happens? The gospel changed society. It made a difference in communities. And so, Murray concludes, he says, the witness of the moral effects of biblical Christianity explains very clearly why the New Testament gives far more space to the necessity of holiness in believers than it does outreach among non-Christians. I always thought that was an interesting statement. What Murray is saying is, the reason the New Testament focuses on Christians and their holiness and pursuing God instead of trying to change the world is because the world is most effectively changed when the people of God are living for Christ. Okay. And so when the Spirit of God is at work, great and marvelous things happen. And so when we, when we say things like, the only hope for our nation is a massive awakening. I believe that 110%. Okay. Do I think that Christians should be politically aware. And be good citizens of the country in which they live. And do their civic duty. And, and labor to actually have. Let's face it. There are, there are presidents that are better than others. Okay? Would you agree? Not not all presidents are created equal. Okay? There are state senators that are better than other state senators there are congressmen that are better than other congressmen there are mayors that are better than other mayors there are city councils that are better than other city councils and so as Christians we, we should I, I think we should be concerned about the state uh, in which we live and we should be concerned about the political and cultural and social environment I have I have six grandchildren and I think about what is this world going to look like when they are grown up, we should be concerned about about moral issues like abortion, like homosexuality, like mass gender confusion. We should be concerned about those things, and we should be good citizens that seek proper channels to see those things changed but you have to understand that our hope is never in being able to maneuver the political system in our favor to produce an outcome because here's the reality is that politicians come and go presidents come and go right senators come and go and the guy that you like Guess what? He's not going to be there very long and because of the fickle nature of of, of human beings and Americans in particular, they're going to pick the exact opposite the next time and you're going to scratch your head and say, what in the world is happening? And then that guy's going to undo everything the other guy did and all of a sudden, if your hope is in politics, you are going to live a life of perpetual disappointment. The only, the only hope for our nation, which by the way, utterly deserves the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah from coast to coast. The only hope is for an awakening. But the only hope for an awakening is a revived church. And so we ought to seek it. We ought to pray for it. The church needs revival. We need revival. And this nation needs the church to be revived that she might be awakened from self-cannibalism. That she might be awakened from a suicidal path of immorality and... and. A violation of God's holy law, like we have not seen ever in this country. Are you not? Are you? If 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 you're forty years old or more, don't you scratch your head and wonder what has happened in just the last few years? Okay. The only thing that can even possibly change. The course of our degenerate, perverted nation is an awakening sent by God's spirit. And so, we should read about revivals because they stir the soul. We should read biographies of men and women that God has used. Why? Because it stirs the soul And we should be praying for ourselves. Lord revive me. We should be praying for our families. Lord revive us. Save my unconverted children. Give us a zeal for Christ. We should be praying for our churches. Our communities. Our nation. And the world. After all. Every square inch of this world belongs to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we realize that you and you alone, the gospel of your son, it's our only hope. And so we pray that you would give us a heart that longs to see you move. We also pray that you would help us not to put our trust in phony saviors. Father, the next president's not going to save us. Only Jesus will save us. And so we pray that you would give us an earnestness. We pray, Father, that that we would, as it were, hold the rope by being good dads and good husbands and good moms and good wives and good churchmen and good workers and, and good bosses. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that even in the little things, you are mightily at work. And so we dare not despise the day of small things. And so, Father, we pray even tonight that you would put a yearning within us. We do long to see you move in ways that we've never seen. And we ask this in the name of your Son, who is seated at your right hand, the one to whom you said, ask of me. And I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. We ask all of this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.